0: Thank you for choosing Hippie Pink Ferret. Please ready your tape while you listen to an advertisement for our latest release.
1: You're listening to Dada or Nothing, a variety show about the visual and performing arts presented by Hippie Pink Ferret. I'm your host Jojo, and this week we're going on a field trip.
0: Please insert tape. Please insert tape. Please insert... Reviewing. Label identified.
1: Dada or Nothing, Season 1, Episode 5.
0: Field trip to the Eric Carl Museum of Picture Book Art. Launching record.
1: <gasps> hello, everyone. Welcome to Tada or Nothing, a variety show about the visual and performing arts presented by Hippie Pink Ferret. I am in my sister's kitchen. Say hello, Sarah. How are hello, you? Hello,
2: hello. Welcome to my kitchen table.
1: It unfolds to be a bigger table. It, it goes from being a
2: rectangle to a square real fast.
1: She has depth. Talking about people who lack depth. My brother Corey. Hi, Corey. I'm a two foot pool, exceptionally shallow. <laughs>
3: I really shouldn't have taken the sip of water before you opened your goddamn trap. Uh, Should have left
1: that one alone. So we three have come together to talk about our trip to the Eric Carl Museum because we didn't really get to say much about it. This episode is dedicated to Jennifer Nelson Rogers, a lovely lady who recently made a donation to the studio. It's folks like Jennifer that allow me to fund our artsy adventures and believe I have a real job. Everybody say, thank you, Jen.
0: Three voices detected. Now analyzing speech patterns.
1: Sarah, your fun fact that you've prepared. I
2: mean, I'm just a myriad of wonderfulness with being an artist and a crafty bitch. I am that Pinterest mom. It's either my best quality or my worst quality.
1: What is one of your favorite creations?
2: My children, I bake them myself. (laughs) took a really long time. Ugh, it cost I ever, a lot of money. <laughs> I got
3: custom made children. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she went for the hat trick. She has three. Corey, illuminate me with your fun fact, please. So I've had a lot of jobs. I worked for Goodwill. I was a waiter. I sold pools. But the coolest job I've ever had was that I taught swordsmanship.
2: I taught people to stab other people. You've always had this need to stab
0: other
1: people, don't lie. Yeah. Where yeah. did you pick up the skill? Books. hey uh so what are your qualifications for this job well i cracked open at least
3: three books on the subject yeah the scholarly research was something that i delved into first because i'm a big fat nerd, nerd. Is the, uh, <laughs> I taught the German tradition as opposed to the Italian or later fencing traditions when I bought my house uh, needed money wanted to think of a side gig very millennial after doing a bunch of research I thought to myself here's a niche that only a couple of different people do it was something that would be interesting as opposed to mind numbingly boring so I bought a bunch of plastic swords and I convinced a local dojo owner pretty much a cold call to her organization saying Hey, can I come to your place and teach kids how to stab? So <laughs> Luckily
1: for you, I currently have a vacancy in stabbers. Yeah, it's also really fun to realize how
3: badly movies do swords. There's always these fantasy movies where some 12-year-old picks up Excalibur and is like, I'm going to join a battle now, and you'd get demolished. There's three moves I can think of off the top of
1: my head where you'd be disarmed and beheaded. I've had to be quickly taught entire sword fighting scenes <laughs> in shows before. She's like, okay, so what do you want to do in the scene? And I'm like, attack? <laughs> i I, I want to win so i have a stabbing implement and i'm feeling like my character wants to stab
2: what else movies get totally wrong the sound a ferret makes what sound does a ferret make a ferret goes great it's kind of (laughs) like oh these exclusive ASMRs. so if you were to write it out it would be duke D-O-O-K. Oh, okay. We're yeah. not
3: going to settle for a count. No. We need a duke. <laughs> duke.
2: <laughs> and even though ferrets are very vocal, over the years, they've put over raccoon noises
1: whenever there's a ferret in a movie. Crafty and resident ferret expert. Thank you, yeah. Sarah.
0: Oh, you're welcome. Woman
1: of many talents.
0: Task complete. The host of the program has been identified as system unsuccessful in identifying guest speakers. Temporary profiles for Crafty Bitch and Professional Stabber have been created. Part 1. A Guided Tour. Subsection A, the grounds. What was your first impression?
3: I appreciated the pun because there's a Volkswagen
1: Beetle outside. So I was like, it's a bug. So there is a Volkswagen bug parked right outside the museum. It celebrates the Very Hungry Caterpillar's 50th anniversary, which I believe was the last big anniversary before the passing of Eric Carl. It has the same texture as Eric Carl's tissue papers. Obviously, the ones that he made to construct the Very Hungry Caterpillar itself. That was your favorite part on the outside, I mean, the door was a little underwhelming.
2: There was no big sign that was like, hey, you've arrived at the museum. Like, It it was like a very nondescript building. We knew that we were there because there was a sign by the road. Other than that, it was very, here's a building, please enter.
1: And that's very surprising because I thought it would have been more colorful. Eric Carl was always jealous of species that could see in multiple colors, like that weird mantis shrimp, because he wished that he could see more colors so he could not only use them, but also have more colors on him.
2: I can't imagine laying awake at night and being like, man, that damn shrimp can see more colors than me. It <laughs>
1: kept me awake at night. <laughs> <laughs> We should probably mention the fact that we were with three children. We were with three children. A gaggle of children ranging in three months to seven years old. We went on a weekday. I think it was the very first day that the museum was open (laughs) during the week. The
2: museum is only open basically the weekend, so Thursday on. So we went on a Thursday because we expect it to be less busy. We went into the old apple orchard towards the end of our visit. The back of the building had way more personality than the front of the building. I wonder if there's zoning laws or anything like that. Walking through that orchard, even though it was only a couple trees at this point and most of it was meadow and roped off and you couldn't go in there. It was really nice to just experience that because they did that very much on purpose. It wasn't just something that was there. It
1: was lovely. The apple orchard that surrounds the museum, not only are there cool little plaques that talk about its history. Eric set up flowers there for his late wife, Bobby. Corey, you ended up playing with the kids with this, what was it? Giant
3: marimba. And it sounded pretty good, frankly, for something that I imagine stays outside most of the time. very much enjoyed the fact that it was a fun functional
1: orchard we like ate the apples yeah we were starving oh. we...
2: i'm 100 sure that we should not have eaten the apples oh, however they did not have a sign that said please don't pick these apples Which, they just said don't climb the trees for liability's sake i'm surprised there wasn't a sign with
3: That's all the caterpillars
1: true. going around they're very hungry they're just <laughs> savaging the museum they're just
3: gonna get in there and just
1: <laughs> well they've definitely taken over the gift shop well, i mean of course there is some cool books in there Corey was the one who found this originally it was called the Black. Book of colors, and so cool. It was basically pages that are entirely black and they have these reliefs on them. Kids who have visual impairment or straight up blindness interact with the bumps to get an impression of how colors are normally interpreted outside of their visual context, which I thought was really cool.
0: Definitely. Subsection B, inside the museum.
1: Upon entering the actual building itself, it does get a lot more colorful. Eric Carl does have a couple of giant paintings. it was one of the very few times he has worked in that large of a scale. There's a red one, there's a green one, there's a blue one, and there's a yellow one. These tiny little dots tie them all together. Otherwise, every single texture is different. He actually used things like brooms to apply the acrylic paint to them.
2: When you're working on something that enormous, you're like, get me that rake or throw the dog at it. Whatever you gotta do.
1: (laughs) Yeah. My very first experience with a museum was the Museum of Modern Art, and it's humongous. So I at first didn't realize that the entire museum, besides like the studio and the theater and the whatnot, is three rooms for exhibition.
2: It was honestly not quite what I was expecting. A lot of these other children's museums, they are play-geared. There's some great places like the Children's Museum of Niantic. You go in, and it is loud, and there's a ton of stuff to do, and this was more of an actual. Museum. You're looking at paintings, you're looking at plaques, you're looking at installations, which threw me off. I expected there to be a lot more going on. The kids were like, oh, uh, it's cool. But then they refocused. How do you
1: design a children's museum? I was kind of worried that, you know, having all three children there, that they were going to get too excited or too bored for us to really take advantage of having driven all the way up there.
2: The lack of things to do was actually perfect. Kids go 100,000 miles a minute, but they were able to go this is the sole thing to focus on. And in every single room if a kid didn't want to do what was intended, they had something else tucked away in a corner. Books in the center of one of the installation rooms. They had little crafts to do or they had little building blocks to do. And it was nice to slow back down, rein it back in, and watch my three-year-old who normally bounces off the walls build a tower with a set of blocks over and over and over again, but she was experiencing Eric Carle's art at the same time. So they gave those kids that were like, yeah, I see the stuff on the wall a different outlet, but they were still experiencing the same art, just in a different format. Which I thought was really interesting, because I do take my kids a lot of places, because we've been cooped up, and it's time to, to do things.
1: Immediately to your left, there is a timeline about Eric Carle's life. It has this beautiful pop-up appearance that traces his entire story. In fact, it was very hard for me when I was researching to find the full ad of the lobster that Bill Martin Jr. saw, but right there is a print of the entire ad. Other things on display near that particular area, Eric Carl apparently made these very simple, very weird, I guess you could call them statues. They're made out of cardstock and straws and plastics, and they sell reproductions in the gift shop. He played with creating actual quote-unquote art, is what he called it. He put, like, huge quotation marks.
2: When you are making money doing one specific type of art, it's almost difficult to break away from that one thing. He knew he wasn't going anywhere with these little things, but they were cool in the museum.
1: Artists tend to get really famous for one particular thing they do. Either it's one particular series, one particular painting, or one particular genre. Kind of like how actors get pigeonholed into certain types. I was
2: just going to say that, very typecast. A lot of the artists that we know really, really well. they died paupers. If they were famous during their lifetime, they were commercial artists. Da Vinci, commercial artist. Rivera, commercial artist. Eric Carl, technically a commercial
3: artist. It is always funny to think of what you are and what you're not remembered for. It's funny that Napoleon is remembered as an individual rather than as a unit with him and his two brothers, because his two brothers were very integral to his success as not only the emperor of France, but his
1: rise through
3: the military.
2: I did not know he was a middle child.
1: When your middle child syndrome takes over a several countries. (laughs) Revolutionary (laughs) France was a shit show just like me. I've had eight coalitions against myself this morning, okay? (laughs) Oh my god. So, going back to the museum itself, around that area where the timeline is, there's also a small theater. You get to see how Eric Carle does his tissue papers. There's a bunch of quirky features in the museum, like the little flies painted inside of the urinals. (laughs) Seeing that in person was really cute, because they're really very tiny. Did you
2: know that going in, or did you go to the bathroom and go, oh my god? No, he knew that going in because we, like,
1: beelined for the-
2: uh... Oh, okay.
3: Lavatory oh, yeah. almost
1: as soon as we got there. <laughs> uh, I needed to see the most important work, according to Eric Carl. How I found out about them was a Good Morning New York special done for, like, the 40th anniversary of the Caterpillar. What's your favorite? And he's like, screw all my artwork. It's the flies <laughs> in the year <urinal." laughs> and they're so <laughs> they're so tiny. <laughs>
0: Subsection C, activity rooms.
1: We had actually just missed uh, a reading time with one of the we attendants. Did. We
2: walked in to the last three minutes of one of the curators reading stories to the kids. There was like a little gaggle of children down by the end. And it was nice to hear words spoken aloud because you walk into a museum and you expect it to be quiet, quiet. And we were hearing kids kind of giggling in the reading. It was nice.
1: The people there were just so mild, especially in that small little library library. So the kids were running around taking everything over and the guy was like, hi, everybody. Welcome. This is a non-lending library. I'm so sorry. So you can enjoy the books while we're
2: here. There was a bunch of books that we've never seen before. They loved that. Yeah, I read
3: Holden
1: the Lorax. Didn't you give Lorax a French accent? I did. <laughs> I yeah. speak for the trees.
2: What
3: was also almost foreshadowing for the exhibit was we ran into a book that was only pictures and I didn't really know that was a big thing. I thought it was a sort of like mm. a one-off thing. The book was about a boy who took a bath and he kept imagining dinosaurs in the bath and he's running around all soapy and stuff. But I was making sound effects for him to make it more interesting. That book, in and of itself, compared to the ones that were on exhibit, was exceptionally underwhelming, but I was absolutely blown away by the ones that were. So Mm -hmm. I have a much bigger appreciation for that approach to children's books now.
1: Bridget, the three-year-old, ended up sitting in a chair, fiddling with these nondescript shapes and blocks set out, and me and our friend Jerusha started reading her books. Even though her eyes were on the thing, you can tell she was focusing on the story being told to her as well. So it allowed that multi-sensory focus for the kids that need it. We were able to secure a ticket to see the studio that children can make crafts in.
2: I really enjoyed that they had an art studio where you could go and create art. And they had curators in there, and the curators described, hey, this is the project that we're focusing on. Should we use these shapes or these shapes? And then we all created art with different tools and different
1: mediums. It seems that they either monthly or weekly kind of switch up what is the theme. When we got there, it was a lot of watercolors. It was about how specific basic shapes can be positioned to tell a story. So a lot of the stuff that was hanging up were just different variations on how children interpreted that. But you're more than welcome to just ignore it if you want and just play around with the stencils that they have provided for the program. It's a pretty big room. There's an entire wall that is made out of windows. There's a lot of light streaming in there. Pegboards. full of... Art that people,
2: other visitors had made. My seven year old was so excited when his art got put up on the wall (laughs) with everybody else's art. And he was like, oh my God, I'm an
1: artist. She was like, do you want to take this home? I'd like to put it on the wall. She was so focused on making sure he wouldn't get upset if it was taken away from him. And he was like, no, no, take it. (laughs) Yeah. He was ready to throw it away. He was like,
2: you know what? This is beautiful. I'm done. Part two, current exhibits.
0: Subsection eight: the memory of Eric
1: Carl. How the museum is laid out, there are three exhibition rooms. There's two giant rooms and a connecting smaller room right in the middle. One of the big rooms is dedicated to, obviously, the legacy of Eric. Uh, one wall is dedicated solely to end papers. They're the things that go... Um, that when help. you open the book yeah.
2: and close the book, it's the last page that binds the book together to its
1: cover. Hanging above the couch in the little reading area that they have positioned in the middle of the room, is actually something he created for a set design for the Magic Flute performed by the Springfield Symphony Orchestra back in 2001. Mm. He still found some way to incorporate his typical design of the tissue paper posters. It has holes punched into it, just like The Very Hungry Caterpillar. Other things around are typical of what you might see in Eric Carls art, like the actual pictures that he made that ended up being reproduced for his children's books. Some of them were still reproductions because they store the originals occasionally, so the light doesn't affect them too much over time.
2: Which totally makes sense. I actually really enjoyed seeing the texture of the actual tissue paper on paper because when you see them in the books, they're
1: beautiful and you can tell that they're textured, but being able to view them from the side was really cool. I imagined them as bigger because, you know, the books themselves are picture books. They're big. They're supposed to be visually stimulating. So seeing all of these famous pictures and all these animals that he's known for making in this small context, it really recontextualized the experience for me. The amount of detail. Some of
3: these go into is striking, especially because a lot of them are very, I don't want to say simplistic, but certainly have an economy of detail in them. Some of them are just a mountain with birds and a sunset or a boy giving a girl something to remember him by. It is pretty dang striking how small they are with the amount of detail that goes into a collage. Imagining
1: him putting them together Mm -hmm. is a heck of a thing. He does have a small portion of a wall dedicated to his artistic forays outside of picture book art and commercial. I'm trying to avoid the word meek, but they're very small, layered texture things. They seem to just be like bubbles of thought than complete works. That's a great way to describe how they were. There's a lot of nice little features of the room. Right now, they currently have a wall that's a detailed spread some joy, and it looks like a bunch of vines. There's a little station park right next to it where you can write little notes that you can stick to the wall. You can essentially help flowers bloom and grow with your own little messages. They encourage you to write things to friends, talk about how much you love them, your favorite things, your favorite colors.
2: I ended up writing one. What'd you write? I I did spread some joy. It's a secret. (gasps) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But I spread some joy that day. I thought it was very cute that it is an interactive installation. I thought that that was perfect.
0: Hippie Pink Ferret apologizes for the interruption. It is time for the service's hourly scheduled test of the emergency advertisement broadcasting system. Your program,
1: Dada or Nothing,
0: will resume following its conclusion. This concludes the test. Resuming program. Subsection B: Ashley
1: Bryan in Song. In the small room that's connecting both the speeches exhibit and the Eric Carl Legacy Room, I guess they throw like more low-key shows there. I mean, it's still very nice, bright room. There's an entire wall painted yellow, and again, there is a sitting area where there's a couple books that are related to the exhibition right in the middle. In the Eric Carl one, there are Eric Carl books, as you can imagine. And this one was focused on an artist named Ashley Bryan. The exhibition's called Ashley Bryan in Song, and the song. Songs in question, are Black American spirituals. Most of the artwork was this stamping process where he would dig into rubber and then put ink on essentially what amounts to a rubber stamp and imprint it on paper so not only could you reproduce it multiple times, it gave this sense of being very intricately detailed. The most interesting part of that process to me is he has to work in the negative. He has to do essentially the reverse of what his intended effect is.
2: I took a class like this in college. It's mm.
1: called lithography.
2: Carving is so so time-consuming, but it is just so satisfying to see your print afterwards. It's definitely a certain style because of the tools that you're using to dig at the rubber. You're literally scooping it out.
3: And it was very striking how there were a couple that were colored in. It brought a lot of details to light that
1: you wouldn't really get from just the black and white ones. The very first sentence in the introduction profile of the exhibition is, During centuries of the slave trade, millions of Africans were seized and sold into slavery in America. They were thrust into into an alien environment, separated from family and friends, forbidden the use of their native languages and denied the customs that gave meaning to their lives. And I thought, Wow, this is a very heavy topic for a children's museum focused on picture book art. It almost seemed out of place because it was literally
3: sandwiched between a room talking about picture books without words and, of course, the main Eric Carle room. But the more I sat around in it, looked at the walls, I saw how they put up the lithographs. It fit a lot better than I thought it did initially, especially because in the background they were playing...
1: Yes, they were playing the spirituals on low volume in the room itself. Yeah, and they had the sheet music. It was a book that contained a lot of the lithographs that were on display. The purpose of the book was not a storybook, but rather a collection of hymnals and spirituals. Specifically, a lot of them geared towards Christianity. Some of the text describes the reason for this is Christianity and its stories about overcoming oppressive structures spoke a lot to the Black Americans experience, especially during slavery. A lot of the enslaved Africans brought their traditions of religious dance and applied it to Christianity. My biggest question is how are they able to connect this topic in a successful way to children? That was something that Eric Carl was very much focused on when he was making his own work so I hope that his museum would have the same kind of thing, and it does. We have these big adult signs telling us what is the setup, like stuff that you would typically see in a museum whenever you go to any given one. And then it had these small ones on the wall to a child's height, not re-describing the text, but approaching it in a different way. For instance, one that struck out to me was, they have a quote by Ashley Bryan that says, "'I love all music because that's the way a child begins, with music, the voice, the spirit of the sound.'" And then I asked the child reading it, "'What music do you love and what songs are important to you?' And there was another one that was like, "'Do you hear the music around you? How does it make you wanna dance?' How brilliant is that? because that's going to be how a child gets into it. They're going to respond very instinctually to something like music. How does a swing low sweet chariot make you feel? Does it want to make you stomp
3: your feet? Does it want to make you shake your hands? It's very cute. And then suddenly in every other room, you're like, how did I miss this? Oh, it's because I'm an adult.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like not for us.
3: (laughs) We missed the magic of childhood because we're too dang tall, which is a first for me, frankly.
2: I mean, children aren't going to know about something unless you expose them to it. Your question about how is a kid going to relate to this. They can't. They're just going to take it all in. But when they come up in another circumstance, they're like, oh, I've seen stuff like this before. You know, humans are dumb. Humans don't inherently know anything. Step number one, just expose your kids to things. Art
1: is a great gateway. Mommy hot take. After we had picked up on the fact that they were there, I kept noticing there weren't periods, end of sentences. A lot of them were open to questions. Back when I was in acting school, one of the classes that made the biggest impression to me was my devised theater class. For one lesson, we were supposed to give feedback to whoever was presenting that day. But the teacher said, you cannot use statements. For instance, if you were coming into the classroom and you had a monologue, let's say you did it in a way that I just really didn't like, like I thought it was all wrong. I can't say the way you delivered the moon line was just wrong. I feel like you don't understand the sentence, blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. Rephrase it as a question. Instead of being like, Sarah, why are you so trash? Pick a different major. Uh, <laughs> Macbeth is not for you, kid. You're not an Ophelia. You're dead in the water. Just um, floating there. So anywho, I had to rephrase it into a way that was like, Sarah, your moon line, what was your intention with that? Like, what are you doing? What's your, what's your, what, <laughs> what verb are you, doing? Are you like? Stop. What are you doing? Stop. Um, <laughs> stop. What verb are you acting on? What are you thinking during that? So it's more of an interpreted question that removes my own thoughts and forces me to implore, well, why is it there? And forces you to answer the same question because maybe you're struggling with the same thing and maybe you threw away the moon line in your delivery because you have no idea what it means. Having to justify that, it forces the person to do their own work without getting a criticism that they might be defensive against.
2: You are speaking the difference between criticism and constructive criticism. Mm, Spicy
1: hot take. Yeah, with with that improv role of yes and. I I was remembering all of this as I was looking at these signs because the children are being given questions instead of being given statements or interpretations on how to view the art. It's um, especially important whenever you're teaching anything is not
3: just what to know, but how to think. And it's something that a lot of people either miss or don't get from their formal education is the philosophy of how to think critically about things. You can have somebody constantly asking questions a la the gadfly, which is kind
1: of the whole point, isn't it? Something that was really cool before we move on, there was a piece that was constructed out of construction paper. Honestly, it was my favorite thing in the room. The artist purposely chose this craft material because he wanted children to feel inclined to mimic it, because they were familiar with the materials based off their cultural context of, you know, these are things that are often given to children. Eric Carle felt very similar about his tissue papers. How cool is it to see this very same material be used to create something that's so intricate and vivid, knowing that, well, why can't I make something like that?
2: Exactly. It's making the art accessible.
0: Part 3. Speechless. The art of wordless picture books.
1: Let's go right on to our main course. The big exhibition was called Speechless. <laughs> <laughs> Though <laughs> <laughs> you. Oh my god, you're ruining the entire exhibition. It was curated by David Wesner. He's a guest curator to the museum. There was about five or six or so books specifically on display for the techniques they use. Each one is completely wordless. What a great topic for a museum. How do you communicate in a pure visual sense? How do you tell a story that's within a book without using any words?
3: I was struck just how much it reminded me of how a lot of Looney Tunes cartoons have a lot of things for the adults rather than for the kids. After reading many a picture book to my niece and nephew, how good the ones that they picked for this exhibit were just astonishingly good.
2: Most of the time when you're illustrating a children's book, you have the words and then you create the picture. This exhibition was the exact opposite. You were creating the words and endless possibilities to these pictures. A kid who maybe doesn't know how to read yet are going to have that experience possibly for the first time of this whole world in their head.
1: That's what we love about reading and we love about books. The way that the room is designed Designed itself. There is a little reading area in every single room. This one had its own walls, and the, on the walls themselves is a timeline of wordless picture books throughout history. It goes all the way back to 1932.
2: These books all did win some kind of prize, and yes. so it's not like, you know, undercover books or anything like that. It, they were very much recognized for how amazing they were at the time that they were published.
1: There are several different shelves right in the middle. There's a lot to grab there. I was focused on making sure I was looking at all the pictures, trying to jot on my notes and when I turned back to make sure that the kids were okay I noticed that Jerusha and Holden had somehow found their way to picking out a book on the shelf sitting down and Holden was telling the story to her. Imagination fuel. It was so cool because it felt like the exhibition was describing what was happening in its center and took different books as examples. I thought it was brilliantly set up.
2: There was also a little section where kids were encouraged to grab a clean white piece of paper and to draw Raw how they felt about being in that room and there was only a small selection of materials and mediums to use but it was a really great way to be like how do you feel about this what was your favorite part?
1: So, Court, you were the one who found the exhibition on The Arrival by Sean Tan first. I, d- I was, like, on the other side of the room, and you had the book in your hands, and you're like, look at this. Yeah, I was
3: blown away by the spreads. It's famous for the sheer amount of illustrations per page sometimes. It can have up to 60 or something, like it said. It tells the story of an immigrant in a new land. To say that visually, was super important because as an immigrant, there's very little you may understand about a new place you're in is because there was a language barrier or something like that or a misunderstanding culturally, socially, something happening to you. To
1: tell the immigrant story, the book uses a very surreal language and a very surreal image style, uh, which is funny because all of the people are semi-realistic. The clothes that they're wearing, a lot of realism to how their face is shaped, but when it comes to grand scale things, you get these surreal, simplified drawings. A lot of elements within Clash to give this idea of these things being so alien when put next to each other Do you really start to feel for the guy when he's going to the Ingoing immigration office? He has all these documents pinned to him and they're all covered in weird symbols Which is something that historically did happen. They
3: didn't even hand him papers They stapled it to his jacket and he's trying to point to things and he's just shrugging because they're talking to him in, Assumedly a language he doesn't fully grasp that subtle storytelling of him becoming more and more exact. with this process. You turn the page and it's a full page spread of what the city looks like and there's a giant bird building looming out of the city and these fantastical elements that
1: really strike you. It's cool because you start to catch on to it too. Like there's that little weird animal that appears to him but then it goes into scenes where you're like, oh, everyone has one of these in the city. You grow a certain kind of comfort even though you don't really fully understand what's going on just like he is.
3: It's an amazing awareness of the medium that you're speaking through which I think, especially with all of these picture books, is super important. Because when there's no words, you just stream through it. You know, think about how much you slow down when you're watching a movie with subtitles, how much you miss or focus on things. And with this awareness of how you're talking to your audience, it's astonishing how much they can say with so little.
1: One of the other books on exhibit is Wolf in the Snow by Matthew Cordell. It was published in 2017, and it is pen and ink and watercolor on paper. It tells the story of this red hooded child. It's a very scary sketchy kind of style. The exhibit goes on to talk about how Red was chosen specifically to invoke the fairy tale of Red Riding Hood, even though it's not a Red Riding Hood story. This child meets up with this wolf cub, and the wolf and the child are very tentious about each other. A lot of the negative space within the image is used to depict snow, and they go on a little adventure together. I've never related to a character in a picture book more
3: than this one, because you find a random puppy in the middle of the the woods. And of course, the first thing you do is pick it up and defend it with your life. (laughs) (laughs) It is adorable. The facial expressions are cute as heck. Reminds me of Sunday comics.
1: The arc of the story is this child grabs this baby wolf. They end up forced to trust each other while they're in this hectic situation. And then they come across the mother and the scale of the story becomes apparent because the mom is three times the size of the child. The perspective in the story, you realize retroactively that it's all shrunken, but zooms out showing us really what the stakes were were like the entire time. It creates this effect of size, even though there is less on the page. This triangular-shaped
3: child who's at least 25% of the picture in any uh, other frame. As soon as they run into Mama, very, very small. They look like a dumpling. Give me your dumplings. Come here, dumpling child. I will eat you. Give me back my child. (laughs) Give me back my son. (laughs) Where is my son? Where is my son? You
1: have my son. Give me back my son. (laughs) It's too cold for this. Give me back my son. As soon as the mom grabs the cub, the kid's like... (gasps) (laughs) <laughs> immediately <laughs> goes down to their knees and starts gasping for air. I love your interpretations. The last book that we are talking about, this one's by Molly Bang. <laughs> Let me tell you, made Listen. a bang. Could you not? The Grey Lady and the Strawberry Snatcher. It was published back in 1980. It's a fairly simple premise. There's this dude, the Strawberry Snatcher, and he's trying to grab the Grey Lady's strawberries. And that's essentially the whole plot. Every page is this sort of khaki... Gray color and the lady, her dress and her hair are the same color as the page. Only her face, her ears, her hands are illustrated because the rest of her, her hair and her outfit are constructed out of the negative space. Whereas
3: the villain is all the colors he's green and he's red and he's purple, he's all feet and big hands and big nose, and uh, he's trying to snatch up them strawberries. And she's blending into the environment, and it's the noise I imagine him making. She's <laughs> this horrible, <laughs> just. <laughs> it's just like
1: Donnie from the Wild Thornberrys. <laughs> So, yeah, so he has the strawberry snatcher. He is this blue character wearing a green cloak with the inner of his cloak being a sharp red. Whenever apparently he makes steps, little mushrooms appear in his wake. He's like a weird fertility goblin god trickster, just. Yeah, he's gross. He's got like this gross brown hat on too. So there's an image of her being in a house, guarding her strawberries away from him. And she's clearly visible, but when they start to move the chase outside, the artist creates a tree out of the same negative space. So she is well hidden because the only elements you see are her illustrative features. And the strawberry snatcher, he's using his green to blend into the background. One of the images that made the biggest impression on me, is mostly negative space. You see some trees. You see her hands and her feet. And so you're like, ah, I found the Grey Lady, the one who's supposed to be camouflaged in the negative space. But the Strawberry Snatcher, I can't find. The expectation is that one's better hidden than the other one. When he's gone, you're put directly in her shoes, the Grey Lady's shoes, having the same emotion. Where is the Strawberry Snatcher? Because you have to find them on every page, it simulates that chase. You are a part of the chase as the viewer, which I thought was so cool.
3: Where's Waldo with dire consequences? <laughs>
1: Honestly, I don't see what's the big deal about the strawberries, but I'm rooting for her. We're big fans of Molly
3: Bang here. Bang!
1: My favorite energy drink, and now one of my favorite children's authors. Congratulations,
3: Molly Bang. This podcast was not sponsored by Bang Energy Drinks, so don't get it twisted.
0: Location data downloaded. Now archiving in the collective unconscious.
1: So yeah, that was basically the Eric Carle Museum. It was a lot of fun, and there was a lot of interesting things to delve into. It
2: was a great time, great time. And you know what my favorite part was spending
1: time with my brother. Oh,
0: friendship. Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
1: So overall, our day was really great. I'm curious what the experience would be like with more people in the museum. It was really nice being able to occupy the entire space just with ourselves and a couple other people.
2: I thought it was wonderful that we got to experience it without other people all over us, honestly.
3: It is also really fun knowing the whole story now of Eric Carle.
2: I
1: appreciate you guys coming on and chatting about this with me. <laughs> I feel like a celebrity now. You're not, but it ah! was a pleasure
3: and it was nice and we'll sure to be back onto this little... I can't what would you call wait it?
1: for our next adventure. A podcast! Goodbye. Cory, goodbye, Sarah, and thank you again for goodbye. listening.
3: Mm, good evening.
0: End of record. We here at Hippie Pink Ferret appreciate your business. Please enjoy this free advertisement for the audio services you just used. <laughs> God, all or nothing is a production of Hippie Pink
1: Ferret. And I've been Jojo, your host. Thanks again to my guests. Sources and links, such as one to a transcript, can be found in the show notes. If you like what you heard, keep up to date with our studio on Facebook or Instagram at Hippie Pink Ferret. That is H I P P I E Pink Ferret. If you really like what you heard, rate our show or leave us a comment. I do produce everything myself right now, so whatever means you have to support the field of edutainment is very much appreciated. If you really, really like what you heard consider becoming a patron or making a one-time paypal donation you'll get a shout out unlock exclusive stuff and every bit of your generosity allows me to keep the lights on and continue providing content
0: custom music by alec rice additional songs and sound effects provided by the script envato elements mix kit voice changer.io voice generator.io and zapsplat.com All audio used is free to use or properly licensed.
1: Again, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to listen. Remember to find reasons to have art in your life. (laughs) The Strawberry Snatcher blends into the more greener environments while... Guest-starring Audrey the Baby. Baby on, Mike. Yes, Audrey. What did you think?
2: How- she's really sad about the strawberries. Mm, <laughs> How can she you doesn't you
1: ever- want them snatched up. That was a really controversial...
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: she's trying to eat it. Mm, mm, nom, it's nom, delicious. Delicious. Mm. What's the recipe? I'm sorry, is this a dynamic or a condenser microphone? I can't <laughs> tell. <laughs> Let me just... Audrey, your mic technique is flawless. I just need you to drool
3: on it a little bit less. Yeah, the drool is free, by the way. You're just kidding. Pay for it on Patreon, for the love of God. You only get baby noises if you pay for Patreon.